This year is brought to you by Eshel Publications. Eshel Publications is a non-profit organization dedicated to spreading the Torah, Shiurim, and Sefarim of Rabbi Aaron Lapiansky. For sponsorships or more information, visit eshelpublications.com. Um, we were speaking about different things that test the veracity of Torah Shabbat and um, one of the things that... Um, we need to talk about is archaeology. Um, last time we had uh, mentioned, we had read from a few places about how everything archaeology has found till now is basically confirmed everything in the Torah, and the historical events, the places, almost everything is as was. I'd like to discuss archaeology in general because every so often they do come up with something um, where they will attempt to test the Torah. And it's good just to have a general sense of some points of it. Uh, I will be using, it's a, um, the book is called Larousse Encyclopedia of Archaeology. Uh, Larousse is a very famous French publishing house. This was translated from the French. Um, it is basically written by uh, professors from the Sorbonne, the um, the Larousse La Cologue, the Coverte des Civilisations de Paris. The uh, English edition was in 72, and this is the, the edition I have is 87, which means it's uh, fairly recent. And it is a very nice introduction about archaeology in general and certain things specifically. This is a very, very mainstream hush of a work, and I just wanted to reach a few, uh, to, to say over a few things. So we have a sense of when we talk about archaeology, what what's happening and so on. Um, the um, let's read a sentence. This is page nine. Although archaeology can, from time to time, recover precise knowledge, and can thus take its place among the exact sciences, this knowledge is always severely limited. By taking into account the stratigraphy. Um, which means the layer of soil, the fabric, and the decoration. It can be stated, for example, that a certain vase of potsherd was made in Athens between 510 and 500 BC, and in some cases it even possibly named the potter. But as soon as a shift is made from definite facts to general deductions, the possibility of inaccuracy creeps in and increases in proportion to the scope of speculations. In other words, um, we dig up a place. I've seen a lot of archaeological digs because I used to teach in Asia Torah, I used to walk there every day, and they were digging all the time, and they still are digging, and they're still creating sites, and so on and so forth. What happens is you dig, you don't find a little temple. That doesn't happen. You find rocks, bits, pieces. It's clear when you look at it with even the untrained eye that this was a structure. It's clear that there are not so many rocks that are shaped and carved, just by accident in one place. Um, you can develop a lot of um, parallel understandings. In other words, um, you, you, make, you say to yourself, certain types of materials were not available for such and such a year, and so on. But it, in a certain sense, everything rests on everything else. In other words, once you've made a determination that they didn't know how to work iron until a certain age, we can draw a line and say that iron was a certain age and so on. 
but that's kind of begging the question. Maybe your first premise was wrong, and this is the first piece of evidence that iron could have been the later, um, and so on. You find a broken path with um, some Greek symbols on it in Israel. So you say, oh, the Greeks were in Israel. But maybe it was a guy who went on a trip abroad and brought back some vases. Um, it, 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 maybe it was a merchant who came by and forgot his vase over there, in, and so on. There is no um, clear, um, absolute ruler with which you can start measuring things and then, and then say, okay, now I have what to measure it by. Even the chronology was terrible. People did not keep a calendar in those days. Um, even halakhically, we date Staris by the rule of kings. That's the, the, the Mishnah Rosh Hashanah, that Abba Rosh Hashanah Lemlachim, and, um, you know, Abba Rosh Hashanah, one is Lemlachim, because you dated Staris by king. Th those were things that were kind of absolute. When such and such king ruled, it was absolute, it was great, it was fantastic, and uh, that was that. The, um, the, so, so, so to establish a perfect chronology is very difficult because you have different cultures without clear, um, no culture, no one set up and wrote a, a list of who are the parallel kings in other countries at the same time. So um, there are parts that do, you know, when we, when we have a war for instance and we say in one place we find material that says in this and this year so-and-so fought against him, and the other place you find this is here, so-and-so fought against him, you can sort of cross-reference stuff. But a lot of times, you have to guess. You have kings that we know about in long periods that we don't know about. Like every good science, we do have to start with some sort of working hypothesis. You can't wait for every piece. It's like, it's like the police investigating a murder. Um, people who are not bright think that Sherlock Holmes is the way it's done. The police go in completely, completely... Um, unbiased. They have no idea who the suspect is. They, they lay down on the floor with a big magnifying glass, find two or three threads, and, mm -hmm, and they come up with the answer. The real truth is the exact opposite. Police says, well, why would somebody be killed? Either it's a family member got into a fight, somebody trying to rob him, or, you know, some other reason. Let's find those suspects, and we'll also look for clues, and we'll try to match them up. But you, you need a working hypothesis to work with things. So you construct a timeline that seems reasonable, and you check back and forth. But there is nothing like an absolute timeline. Um, those are, um, let's read another piece here. This is page 95. And it says, Chronological Systems of the Ancient World. This is establishing dates. It's a chapter called Establishing Dates. And it's about how objects and monuments are dated. Um, the uh, uh, ob uh, objects dated by inscription, chronologists in the ancient world. Unfortunately, the archaeologist is up against a serious problem already. The problem of translating ancient references into terms of current chronology. <coughs> the classical world often dated by natural events, particularly astronomical sightings. And that's very nice when you mention the eclipse. It's nice when you mention the great storm that everybody knew. It doesn't help you very much 3,000 years later, when trying to figure out what we're talking about. Um, the, um, also, there's another fact. Kings and people writing monuments tended to lie. Um, they, you know, it's, nothing's new. Um, truth wasn't 
the first uh, uh, the first virtue on the shopping list, um, and therefore whether the king won or lost the battle, he was usually they had spins and they would write they won it and they would extend their kingdom and so on. So the establishing of the dates has not been great. Well, we all know that there is um, uh, there are um, also uh, objective dating, which we call radioactive magnetic material. Let's read about that, page 109. There will always be a mass of material to which typological methods cannot be applied, but which is datable by other methods. In case of carbonized organic material, those of physical science are helpful. Because, I'm just paraphrasing, when everything that's alive has a certain amount of radioactive carbon, after death it's dispersed at a certain uniform rate because the half-life of uh, reactive material is very fixed and we can measure the residue of the radioactive carbon. By the way, it's only good for the last 50,000 years, not good for anything earlier. It is true that this method, disputed by some, includes a margin of error which varies according to age of the specimen. For example, for substances some 2,000 years old, the margin is in the order of 200 to 300 years. This alone makes the method unsatisfactory for classical times onwards, because documentary records usually furnish a more precise date. Moreover, the rate of disintegration can be accelerated or slowed down if the specimen has been subjected to a variety of chemical reactions. If, for instance, it has been exposed to rain. Um, so the, the dating of radioactive material, um, which is a um, the um, which is something which can be um, affected by rain, by water, by other chemical activities that we have no doubt about. Theoretically, the the radioactive disintegration itself is fixed. Now we know that's one of the those are very fundamental laws of physics, and it doesn't change. But you have to understand something. We're not talking about the rate of disintegration of the material but the rate that that material can leach out of the specimen. So it's, a, it's really a crude... People apply the absolute standard of physical phenomena, physical kind of, I mean, physics phenomena, to, to this. But you're talking about material that has a material that's absorbed and can be affected in many ways. Um, so, the, the, and so there are different methods, and what you try to do is that um, you try to use different methods and see if they are um, they are similar. There are some other things. You have a building with um, a, a, fi a fireplace in it, and there are a lot of samples in the fireplace where people cook stuff, but it's not always the same age as the building and so on. So it is a method, and it does yield some results, but it's not fantastic. Um, the um, as far as biblical archaeology goes, the um, there is a chapter about it also, 176, and uh, page 176, and it does actually say that. Let me see if I can read this exact statement. It speaks about Israel and Jordan, and um, when archaeology developed, it was in the mid 1800s. The value of the Bible as a historical document became obvious. 
It was confirmed by the discovery in 1868 of the stell of King Mess of Moab. Stell are big columns with carved out uh, kind of uh, statements and uh, stuff like that, bearing a long inscription in a language similar to Hebrew and a script similar to the ancient Phoenician text. It commemorates a passage of arms between Mess and Israel, which is described in the Old Testament in Malachim 2, chapter 3. Um, and basically it goes on to say that, so this was indicated, and then it goes on to say that almost everything, um, the, the British did a lot of excavations, except for Telalat Gasul, the names quoted above are those of ancient cities as they appear in the Old Testament, as identified by experts. The excavations conducted since 1920 therefore confirm the historical validity of the Bible. Building objects in ancient Hebrew texts will also seem to be full of information on various periods of history as well as the contacts between Palestine and other countries. So, basically, by and large, um, archaeologists confirmed the vast amount of truth in the Torah. Um, which, m yes, Benchus? Um, it would seem to me that, you know, I, I haven't read this book, but it seems as referring to the geography of Israel, that there was this city there, and there, there was this king at this time. Yes, and it, you know, this correct. The places, and, uh, exactly. Right. But, but at least the one thing that we do see is that there was an extraordinary sense of accuracy, like we spoke last time, when tall tales tend to be short. On, it's always never, never land in Gubu Mubu, the king of the, of the, of the something or others, here, the, 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 the stories take place within a very, very specific context that are accurate. Yes. Uh, but there are many um, stories in Tanakh which, uh, at least from my, my perspective, I would think that there would be some record um, in other archaeologies. For example, uh, the defeat of Sanchez's army in one night when they were uh, charging in the days of Yoshiahu uh, in... Okay. Um, Good. So, so or Hesiahu in uh, Yerushalayim, or you know Yitzhak Mitzrayim, where there's destruction of Egypt, and uh, even though Egypt might not say anything about that for their own self-interest, but other nations would say Egypt was destroyed, right. or you know Sanherib's army was destroyed. Sanherib was a powerful army at that time, and he was wiped out in one night. Then I would think there'd be something somewhere else at least. So, so I was wondering if yes. Okay, so, so now we come to the other flip side. The archaeology record as such is almost always, I mean, it's been uh, confirming. What about the stuff that's written that's not there? So, um, there's a, there is, for that itself, there's a very interesting, um, uh, I mean, a very plausible explanation. I, I would like you to pick up a dozen biographies of, of big people, autobiographies, not biographies, sorry, autobiographies, and um, and take a look for the chapter in each autobiography that is the terrible things I've done. Uh, you'll be very hard for, to find them. Um, if you read autobiography after autobiography, everybody did only great things. Occasionally you get like a very big Balchuva who write the terrible things I've done and have to change my life around, but um, people don't, are not inclined to write about their failures. Um, certainly today, even when we're sophisticated and it's in vogue to write a little bit about your human side, the, the king, the, 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 there were no newspapers in those days where people sat and recorded events. 
uh, kings would establish monuments to their greatness and to their virtuosity and, uh, and heroism, etc., etc., um, nobody put up a monument for defeat except by the country that defeated you. The victors put up monuments, the losers slunk back with the tail between the legs and forgot about the whole thing. So it would be very hard put that Ashur or Sanchev would write, Avoisai, I really bit the dirt when I, when I invaded the Israelites. Also, they were not in a the mood. There is, um, there is a famous Egyptian spell which describes all sorts of terrible plagues that have occurred in Egypt, that the gods were angry with them, that sort of people say coincide with Jesus and Shayim. I, I take these things with a grain of salt. The, the spell does exist, that is fact, and so on and so forth. But once again, the dating is vague and, and, and so on. I also want to point, okay, so, so we have generally, out now, I did quote this sentence about archaeology supports the Torah. And I, and I want to add a point to this. When you have a picture, uh, there's a game. Give um, the, one of the games you have, contests and games that you have in magazines. A lot of times they'll have a cartoon or a picture and give a caption to the picture to the cartoon, and you'll get a wonderful, amazing riot of all sorts of cute captions and uh, many that seem to fit the picture. Um, the Torah is a written record which gives a caption. If you know, it, 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 if the archaeology fits then it snaps into place. Like you said before, written records are extremely helpful in, in, um, in, in identifying. It's, it's just like in a court case. Let's use it as an analogy because it's a great analogy. When, when the Sherlock Holmes marches into the courtroom with two threads and a piece of glue, it's cute. When you've got the best, the best um, case against somebody is a confession with corroborating evidence. Confessions alone, we tend a lot of us mistrust. A person um, may have been coerced, and that's one. Secondly, the person may have psychologically been coerced. You do have people imagining things, and so on and so forth. But when we have both, they, they tend to complement each other. He was in such and such a place, and his footmark is there. When his footmark is there, and he protests, and he says he's never there, somebody might have taken shoe and put a footmark there. It's unlikely, but it could be. So there is something that to be said when you find archaeological evidence that snaps into place, like the treaty of Nisnet and described in Nach, it's very powerful. If you find evidence that's vague, lacking, we don't know, and, you know, I, I'm not saying it can't be not like that from a secular point of view, but it's much harder, an unnamed picture, we find a path somewhere, uh, uh, shards and stuff like that, doesn't seem to match the picture, there may be other explanations. That's, like he says here, the problem with an archaeological site is you're looking at things and you don't have, you have to guess what are the things you're looking at. Um, so those, those are elements of, so archaeology has, like we saw last time, when we read the article in Britannica, it started out with a world of skepticism. I mean, if people were to dig up and to find evidence of Zeus and Jupiter and, uh, and so on, then the Greek mythology, they would be highly shocked. People had that same attitude for the Bible, and they were very, very surprised that the, the hi history, by and large, is followed, and so on. The Jews did not seem to construct many um, stels. They, they did not, the, 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 the um, sort of type of grand monuments was alien to the Jews. 
and we don't have our own records uh, that would say we did this and this happened and so on and so forth. We have it in the Torah and the Vim and so on and so forth. There is another thing that has crept up over the years. It's quite famous. It's matching um, up foreign cultures and ideas to Yiddishkeit. And um, there are two very famous works. They are there's the epic epic of Gilgamesh, uh, which quote unquote is similar to the accounts in Gracious, and there is the Code of Hammurabi laws, which are quote unquote similar to the Torah, and therefore um, the natural science, quote unquote scientific explanation is they we took the stories from them, we find it and sharpen it. Um, certainly the, so um, Hammurabi's codes have been dated to a, um, to be like three, four hundred years before modern Torah, kind of, maybe even more, um, and so on. And uh, the, um, and that's why we, and we have a, a quote-unquote problem. How can you have the Chukim of Torah predating the Torah? Obviously, the Torah borrowed from it, and so on and so forth. Um, now, let's before we even look at it. These are that these are kind of uh, batted around as being obvious and given, and so on and so forth. There are a few issues. First of all, a the code of Hammurabi actually happens to be not the only code. There are a whole bunch of other codes from that era. These codes, the dating of the codes, is um, imprecise. They can, they they are um, officially given as anywhere between 1600 to 1800 BC, Matan Torah being 1300 BC, um, putting it anywhere between two to three hundred years before to five, six hundred years before. The later dating puts it after Avram Avinu, just so that we have some sense of, of it. Uh, that's one point. Secondly. You read them, and it sounds very much like the language of the Torah. There's a problem. The, the language that they were written on, the alphabet, is called cuneiform, which is somewhere between hieroglyphics and slowly over the ages became more like a written language. <laughs> it has something like 1,600 um, different characters at, the, at, at its large end, and I think like 400 characters at its small end. It's not language. What it, it's it's pictures, um, pictures with some nuances of language, and um, the people transcribing these cuneiforms use the language of the Torah to fit it. So when you see an Eved being beaten by a master and the Eved giving a, and, the, and the master giving some coins, the translation goes kiyake adonis avodav chamesh shekel yitel and so on and so forth. Remember, that's not it's, that's not a translation. It's a caption given to it, and that's why it sounds oh, sounds like the Torah. Yes, the person writing it used it for good reason. You know, this is this is classic language, and we'll translate the classic language. That's not that's not at all what it's like. Cuneiform is a very it, it's 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 a bridge language between um, representative to pictographic, and it is not as neat. And there are disagreements about different translations. But let's take a look at the flavor of it. I'm not going to go... Th the, the, the code starts with... Hammurabi's Code of Laws starts with a... Um, uh, uh, first of all, when Anna the Sublime, King of the Anuki, and Bel, the Lord of Heaven and Earth, which is Baal, 
who decreed the fate of land assigned to Marduk, the overruling son of E, God of righteousness, the meaning of earthly man, made him great among the Gigi and called Babylon by his illustrious name, so on and so forth. Um, he, he refers to all sorts of different gods over here. Um, a lot of, uh, if you want to get a sense of what Avodah is, Hammurabi the prince called of Bel Amai, making riches and increase, enriching Nippur and Duri Luban, compare sublime patron of Ikur, who established Eridu and purified the worship of the Apsu, who conquered Foko's world, made great the name Babylon, rejoiced the heart of Marduk, um, who pays his devotions to Sagil and so on and so forth. I mean, it's real of Azar, the brother of the gods Amama, um, and uh, so on. The Code of Laws translated reads, one, so there are 280 um, laws over here. Nothing, no, no klolim of Asisa Hatova, Yosha, you know, Kimashen Adorishmim Chol, just laws. The first one, just like, if anyone ensnares another, putting a ban upon him, but he cannot prove it, then he that ensnared him shall be put to death. Nothing, nothing like it. If anyone brings an accusation against a man and the accused goes to the river and leaps in the river, if he sinks in the river, his accuser shall take possession of his house. But if the river proves that the accused is not guilty and he escapes unhurt, then he who has brought the accusation shall be put to death, while he who has leaped in the river shall take possession of the house that belongs to his accuser. Which we understand now that Allah Hawaii that he should get out of swim. Very, very, very important. Um, if anyone brings an accusation of any crime before the elders and does not prove what he has charged, he shall, if it be a capital offense charge, be put to death. Um, on and on, um, if somebody steals the property of a temple or the court, he shall be put to death. Um, if anyone buys a son of a slave or another man without witness a contract, and, and so on and so forth. Um, if you steal cattle or sheep or an ass or a pig or a goat, if it belongs to a god, the thief shall pay thirtyfold therefore. This is going on and on over here, and there are very few laws. Um, for instance, if one, if anyone still the minor son of another, he shall be put to death. Gonev Isha Mecharo does not do their minor. Now, someone say, well, it's similar. Well, kidnapping being a capital offense can be similar. I mean, yes, kidnapping is a common offense. People did it for all sorts of reasons, and it is a terrible offense. But to say that it had to be taken from this, or that a person, um, if you take male or female slaves to the court, outside the city gates, and put to death, this is on and on. There is very little of it that is even vaguely close to the Torah law. Um, there are, there's a few of them that are quoted, and the question is, um, you know, I, I invite yourself to go on to, uh, there are five, quite a few sites that contain Wright's translation of it, and um, very, very little of it is, um, bears any type of, for instance, if a man is guilty of incest with his daughter, he shall be driven from the place. He's put to death by Din, um, and, and, uh, and so on. The, the, um, I, I just, in reading through it, it's not that we have different halachas, it is completely different. Yes, there are two, three, or four that sound similar, but again, stealing an Eved and paying for it and so on might, you know, there might be one thing that happens to be the same, but I think an objective reading of it would not anywhere put it closer. That's one. Two, um, it's interesting, 
um, you know, they say, well, it's a code of law. We have um, a chazal, we have many chazal, that speaks about the door of Noah was mekabel on themselves um, arayas, to be go themselves in arayas. So we read it to say, ah, what do you think, they had a Sanhedrin there, and they got together, and the rabbis made a kokore, but yes, they had codes of laws. This is the, ri- the, the rising codes of laws. We read about stone, and they had all sorts of laws, and so on and so forth, so it's kind of stories. They did have codes of laws, look at that. They have a whole bunch of them, and, you know, and, and it is interesting that, um, you know, Chazal do tell us that there were codes of laws, etc., and, and this is what they're like. The, um, there's also another element. We, we do know that Avram Avinu, we have Chazal have a Mesaurus of Avram Avinu. Um, by the way, if one deceives a barber and have him mark a slave not for sale with the sign of a slave, he shall be put to death and buried in his house. The barber shall swear, I did not mark him willingly, and shall be guiltless. Um, I don't know, you know, so I guess barbers here are, were kind of, it was a risky, it was a risky trait. But, but I, 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 um, I, I uh, encourage you to go through the 281 of them and find out how many might be similar. If you date Hammurabi's code to be basically the time of Avram Avinu, Avram Avinu had a code of laws that was Torah. Um, it didn't have a din of Torah and so on, but we know he was Mekayim Kola Torah Kula, which means he was Mechavin to what the Torah wants, and things could have been borrowed from him. But I'm just saying, if you, an honest reading of it, so if, if the Torah is kind of a vague type of, uh, you know, vague set of ideas, so you say, okay, we've got some vague ideas here, vague ideas there, they borrow from each other. It's not like it at all. And the same thing is true if you read the Epic of Gilgamesh. It, it's so much a myth, and one or two or three things there sound somewhat familiar. To us, it wouldn't be surprising. Um, for instance, the flood, the idea of a flood taking around the entire world is something which is um, which is which is a um, almost universal narrative in different ways about a flood having overtaken the world. Now, um, the, the so you can look at it in two ways. The scientists say, well. Uh, scientists, I mean, I mean the s- secular people would say, listen, that is obviously a myth, and we'll talk a little bit about the scientific points of it. So take a look, some great storyteller must have told the story of a flood, and that's why everybody picked it up. But we say it, we understand, it was a historical event. So everybody is conscious of the fact there was a flood. The story became distorted, the story became padded, the story became... Uh, you know, diluted in their places, but the fact that there's a universal sense of a flood is supportive. It's, it's um, you know, it, 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 it's something which kind of points out maybe that's the truth. So al in in, um, in in all of these things, in, in, in these codes of laws, um, and also in um, the codes of laws and, and these epics of narrative creations, that's so. If you if you read it inside, people quote it offhand. But if you take the trouble to read them, you say to yourself, it's like so much chaff and one little piece of grain. Um, it, 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 there's no resemblance between the Gilgamesh epic and the Torah. 
it's, it's, it's yes, there's a creation of light, but 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 it's mixed in somewhere in the middle, and and it's got very very little um, on the closeness to the Torah, um, and and to say that one came from the other is very difficult. So by and large, as as far as the 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 um, type of of the archaeology, the dating, and so on and so forth, I think we have a reasonable sense of two things I think that's very important. One is the fact that the facts are not hard and fast. The further back you go in time, the harder it is that scientifically we establish anything. Um, it disappears. And, you know, th- th- we, we find rocks. We do find rocks. But exactly what they were and how they were and so on, it keeps shifting because it's a puzzle with a lot of open pieces and different people make different ranges out of it. The lang- the early languages being that they are pictograms of sort uh, are really, really, um, it, it, when, it's pr- pr- when it is translated in precise language, we lose out on it. Um, we do very strongly believe that Claudius Yisrael had the emis and that started with Avraham Avinu, and those ideas diffused outwards to other umos. Um, it's not particularly um, academic to say that. You know, you you always want to look at yourself as being influenced by other cultures, but um, we believe that to be MS, and there's absolutely no evidence to the contrary whatsoever. The one topic that's left over that... N- now, there's also, um, there's also type of evidence of absence. Uh, Pinchas pointed out before, why don't we find descriptions of big nisim in other, wh- why don't we find any descriptions of big events? To which the answer is, there were no objective writers, and if the event was detrimental to any culture, or if the culture became impoverished, like Egypt or whatever, they would usually not write about it, they didn't have the time, they didn't care to write about it. I mean, all the writings that you have are not histories, they're um, monuments. These stalls, everything, these are all kind of monuments, proclamations, stuff like that. That's what they invested in. They did not invest in objective histories. You also find things like, we don't find a record of a large number of people having lived in the desert all those years, and in the desert wouldn't preserve and so on and so forth. Um, it, that's always a very, to start with, Lora Ina and Araya, we should have found evidence is always not a great position, but it, what's amazing is, if, for instance, the evidence we should have found all sorts of, um, you know, food leftovers like we find in sites and rubbish dumps and clothing and stuff like that. But the Torah says, and Chazal say, they ate man and that did not leave over junk. We know that the clothing didn't wrap and so on and so forth. So you can't tell me, you don't believe the Torah because those are stories, and since we don't find any archaeological finds of, of, of the junk that they left behind and so on, um, that, that, that disproves the Torah. The Torah is very consistent. And if you, if you go with the stories where they're told, one would not expect to find very many things. The only area that we do have left are two very important areas. And that is... Um, so let's go so on. From Avram Avinu onwards, by now, people agree. Certainly from Kaisel going to Israel, um, there's an agreement that the facts are as it says. They'll dispute the Nisim. Um, from Avram Avinu 
two cars were going to Mitzrayim, um, they still are iffy about it, and they say there's a vague truth to it, and so on and so forth. That's the most current academic understanding. But from Avram and beforehand um, is where there are arguments and so-called proofs against it. First of all, the, the flood. Um, the marble should have left a mark. Um, that's something that is not, you can't say Lorraine and Araya. I mean, you know, you, you, the, one would have fi- found strata that have layers and layers of, um, you know, a flood layer or something like that. That's one issue that we'll have to deal with. And the second issue is the um, evolution, not in the sense that we spoke about as life coming in on its own, but we find tons of materials that are obviously older than the Torah's um, than the Torah's dating. In other words, we'll find trees with many rings more than the, the date that we've worked out from the Torah is 5,700 years. We find um, the Earth's geological age is much older. We find bones and stuff buried that we can date with carbon dating and so on and so forth. Those are things that we need to deal with as well. So this is a second type. It's it's not evolution. You don't have to come on to evolution, but hey, you're telling me that the world started 5,700 years ago. Um, we find um, layers and layers of sediment. We find we can date the world geologically. We can date the world um, with various living artifacts, with carbon dating and other types of dating, and that seems to prove against it. Those are issues next time that we really have to confront. Any questions, Pinchas? Mm. Okay, good. So, Emet Hashem next week will we'll work with that, and I think that'll be kind of the end of the, of, of the sort of background information, and then we'll start to work more on what the Torah wants, and such, and things like that.